Today we come to the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Now we've seen a lot of miraculous things in the book of Acts. Obviously, that's sort of the thing with Acts, is all the miracles and all the amazing revelations and stories and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we're not done yet. This is not the last one. We've, we've still got some very cool things to see. But today's message, going through the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 21, this allows us to address an important subject in the New Testament and an important component of the church, or what ought to be an important component of the church, and that is prophecy. Now, by that, I do not mean end times prophecy, although that is very important too. And when the time comes, we will discuss that. But I'm talking about the regular Spirit-filled utterance in the church, revelation from God for our situations today. And when we start talking about prophecy in the church, it is very difficult to find a balanced biblical approach on this one. Because on the one hand, you have what's called the cessationist position, which means there is no more prophecy. It's over. God is not speaking anymore. That's done. We should not expect miracles. We should not expect prophecy, any of that. But then on the other hand, you got some folks that it seems to be all that they can talk about. And all they really want to do is try and find some new supernatural manifestation in the church and put far too much emphasis on it, way out of proportion biblically. Now, as always, we don't want to just believe what the Bible says, but we want to do what the Bible says. So today, I want us to look at the scripture and what the New Testament especially teaches about prophecy in the church, not just as a matter of faith and doctrine, but as a matter of practice and how it ought to be done and handled in the church. It's no good when we try to pit the prophecy of the Spirit against the Word of God, because they both come from the same Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit has said in His Word about His continuing Word to the church. We're going to look at why we believe in this, and we do believe in this. We're going to look at how it is to be handled. And there's two main things that I want us to learn today from this passage. Number one is that the church is to be a prophetic church. We are to be a prophetic group of people. And number two, we are to test all things in order to filter out lies, to filter out opinions, and to filter out bad teaching. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 is sort of our theme verse for this subject. I don't think there's a passage in Scripture that sums up how we are to operate in this respect than these verses here. Short verses. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. That is such a great balanced section of scripture that gives us something wonderful to believe, but also reminds us not to get carried away. And I recognize today that as we talk about this, that some of you may have been hurt by somebody in your life who claimed to be speaking for God and instead was speaking on their own presumption and hurt you, and maybe told you something that was going to happen, or something that you needed to do, and that was not from the Lord. I recognize that that happens, which is why we've got to look at what the Bible says. I hope today that we will learn to accept God's good gifts, but to accept them with the wisdom and the discernment that God has given to us. Because God does not just drop miraculous things in our lap and say, have fun. He gives us a lot of instruction surrounding it that gets neglected. And I want to make sure that we take the time to look at it today. So let's read the first seven verses of Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus... Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Okay, so you remember from last week, Paul stopped in Miletus and met with the Ephesian elders there. He's on his way back to Jerusalem from his third journey. He's been away for years, and he wants to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. You see in verse 1, it says that we set sail because Luke is one of several companions that Paul has traveling with him, and Luke is the one that wrote the book of Acts. And what they're doing is not just returning from the journey, but Paul has taken a collection from all of these churches he's planted, and they're going to bring a financial gift on behalf of the Gentile churches to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. This is Paul's way of making peace between the two groups because there was still tension there. And we'll look at that in more detail next week. And it says they were parted from the Ephesians in Miletus. And literally the word there in Greek, it says that they were torn from them. You ever have to leave somebody and you feel like you were being torn apart, even though you, you really didn't want to leave, but you know you had to? Because remember, they thought Paul was going to his death. They thought Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed. And these verses are mostly a travel log. You can see how they're island hopping. They go from Miletus, they go 40 miles to Kos, 90 miles to Rhodes, very interesting, you may maybe have heard of the Colossus of Rhodes, which was this enormous statue that was right there in the harbor, so Paul probably passed that. 60 miles to Patara, and then they get a 400-mile trip to Tyre from Patara. And they pass Cyprus, which is that island on their left-hand side, which means they went south of it. And they arrive at Tyre, and if you are familiar with your Bible, you've heard of Tyre several times. It's in modern-day Lebanon. It's one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. People have been living in Tyre since time immemorial. It was a Phoenician city, and they had been in Israel's history many times, whether as friends like Hiram, who was David's friend, or as foes. There's one point in the prophets where they refer to the king of Tyre as a symbol for Satan. So they've had a dicey history between the two. But now Paul gets there, and he can seek out disciples. There are Christians in Tyre. And he spends a week there. And the church sends him off. They go out on the beach and pray with him. They send him down to Ptolemais, which is 25 miles south. Ptolemais would be renamed. You may be, if you're familiar with Crusader history, it was one of the big Crusader cities called Acre, and now it's called Akko in Israel. So that city is being inhabited as well. But we see in verse 4, this is the part I want to draw out. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is very similar to what we read in the last chapter. In Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, Paul said, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So it seems that in every stop along the way, every city that Paul was stopping at, he was being warned by prophets in the church about his coming arrest and his coming imprisonment. We're going to address the content of what they said in a few minutes because it's going to happen again in Caesarea. But we see this at work, so I want us to arrive at a solid biblical definition of prophecy. A lot of times when you're doing theology, half the battle is defining your terms. Because sometimes people can be using the same word to mean two different things, and that's why they're fighting. So let's arrive at a biblical definition of prophecy here. When we hear that word, we immediately think of telling the future, right? If somebody's a prophet, they're telling what's going to happen in the future. And that's a good definition, but it's an incomplete definition. That's not all that the Bible means when the Bible says prophecy. I've heard it put this way, and maybe this will help you. It's kind of a mnemonic. Prophecy is not just foretelling but it's also forthtelling. It's not just saying what's going to happen in the future, but it's God's word for that moment, speaking out in the moment. Whether that means speaking out future events, 
Or if you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of it was not warning of anything. It was just speaking to the people, bringing rebuke, bringing encouragement, whatever needed to be said. In 1 Corinthians 14.3, Paul gives a little definition. He says, one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So it's not just telling the future. The prophets never just told what was going to happen. They also added words from the Lord of encouragement or rebuke or warning. And that's how the Bible defines prophecy. Somebody who hears from God and then communicates that message to the people. Whatever the content of it may be, that's what prophecy is. And I think that most of the abuse of what people call prophecy comes from a bad understanding of what a prophet is. You read through the Bible, it doesn't necessarily define it for you, except for what Paul says here, but you see it at work. But we've got some cultural baggage that we attach to the word prophet, depending on what church tradition you grew up in. So let's talk about some of these. And I'm going to give four things that prophecy is not, if you're taking notes. Number one, prophecy is not just strong teaching. You ever heard that? When somebody gets up and they've got one of those in-your-face Bible studies and they're telling you what you got to do, oh, that was prophetic. I've heard people say, oh, he's a really prophetic preacher. What they mean by that is he's really mean. He yells at you and he tells you all the things you're supposed to be doing and shakes your finger. That's not necessarily the case. Remember, in Isaiah chapter 40, what does the first verse say? Comfort my people. The prophet is not just somebody that comes in and gets mean because some people are just mean. And so then they say, oh, well, I must be a prophet then. No, not necessarily. There is a lot of things that God wants to communicate. It's not just being grumpy. Number two, prophecy is not just teaching. This is a newer one that I've heard where people say, well, the prophets didn't necessarily hear anything new from God. What they were doing was they were looking at the law of Moses and realizing what it meant. And so then they came up with creative ways to communicate the message. Well, that sounds very good. But that's not what the prophets actually say. Isaiah says, I was in the presence of the Lord, and I saw his train filling the temple, and the filled of smoke, the Lord said, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. That's prophecy. There is a difference between teaching and prophecy. And we're going to see this several times as we go through this, that the New Testament distinguishes teaching from prophecy. It actually puts teaching on a higher plane than prophecy, if you can believe it, which makes sense when you think about it. But it's not just strong preaching or being grumpy. It's not just being a good teacher. And it's not, number three, having an ecstatic experience. And we're going to look at this in a few minutes too. The Lord has done some radical things with people. And I know some folks that have had some amazing experiences with God. But that itself does not make you a prophet. Because if that's what it is, a lot of people get really good at working people up and causing them to have very emotional experiences. And when they're in those emotional states, they think, well, I can't say anything wrong because I'm prophesying. That's not good. There were some prophets that we're going to see in the Old Testament that probably would have made us really uncomfortable. John the Baptist, I think, is one of those guys. Shows up dressed in camel's hair, hadn't cut his hair or beard his entire life, eating bugs, and starts hollering at people and dunking them under the water. But then you've also got other prophets that, much more gentle, much more kind, like John the Apostle. You know, he's like, oh, my dear beloved children. We're like, that's the kind of prophet we want. But it, it applies to both. It's not just having an ecstatic experience. Number four, here's my favorite one. Prophecy is not taking your own ideas, wrapping them in biblical language, and then beating people over the head with it by saying, thus says the Lord. You ever know people that do that? When you say, I've got something I want to say, but if I say it with a lot of these and a lot of thous, then people have to listen to me because it's from God. And there are folks who say, well, that's all the prophets did. No, it's not. No, it is not. There are people that will claim the title of prophet and then run around telling people, you have to listen to what I say. You know, just like Jesus did, right? No. Jeremiah 23, verses 21 and 22. Jeremiah, if you know the story, had a lot of false prophets that were prophesying against him. And he was kind of the only one telling the truth. But listen to what God says here. I did not send these prophets, and yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people, would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. What's God saying? Yeah, they're prophesying, but I didn't tell them to do that. 
So there are folks that will claim to be prophets, and the Lord says, you didn't stand in my counsel. You didn't get words from me. So if you've ever seen something and they say, well, he's a prophet, and you're like, I don't know, that seems kind of weird. It's probably weird. And just because somebody comes in and says, I have a word from the Lord from you, there is a place for that, but that does not mean that they're not just trying to manipulate you and use biblical language to do it. So those four things. It's not just strong preaching. It's not just teaching. It's not ecstatic experiences only. And it's not, certainly not, your own ideas wrapped in biblical language. To be a prophet is to hear from God and communicate his message. And most often, as you read the Old Testament, it was not these big end-of-the-world prophecies. Most of the time, it was God's word for that moment. The Old Testament prophet, and I would say the New as well, was there to address the immediate concerns of the people. Read through Kings and Chronicles, for example. The kings always had prophets in their courts on attendance with them, so that when they needed to make decisions, they would call the prophet and say, what does the Lord say about this? That was the function of a prophet, to say, what is God's word for today? We have the scriptures that give us God's word for all time, but the scripture is not going to tell you, should I go here or should I go there? Should we go to battle or should we not? So that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and speaks. For example, and I wish we could tell this story, the whole thing for time's sake, but in 1 Kings 22, the northern kingdom Ahab and the southern kingdom Jehoshaphat, they decide they're going to have an alliance and go to war together. Bad idea if you know your Bible because Ahab was not a good dude. And he says, hey, let's go to battle at Ramoth-Gilead. And Jehoshaphat says, that's great, but we should check with the prophets first and see what the Lord says. And Ahab brings in hundreds of prophets. And they're all saying, yes, go up to battle. The Lord will give you victory. And it doesn't give us any details, but Jehoshaphat says, do you have any more prophets? <laughs> Something was weird about this situation, and Jehoshaphat knew it. And Ahab said, yeah, well, there's this one guy named Micaiah but I don't like him because he never says anything good about me. <laughs> Where is he? He's in prison. <laughs> so they go and he said, well, no, 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 don't say, let's get Micaiah out here too. And these hundreds of prophets are all saying, go up to battle. And Micaiah shows up and if there's a, an award for more sarcastic man in the Bible, Mi Micaiah might be it. Because they bring him up and Ahab says, all right, should we go up to battle? And Micaiah, this is just how it says, he says, yes, go up to battle. The Lord will deliver you. And Ahab responds and says, how many times have I told you not to lie to me? <laughs> so what probably happened was Micaiah sees all these hundreds of prophets and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, just listen to those prophets. Do, you know, whatever. Do your thing, Ahab. He says, no, you, you be honest with me. And he says, yeah, if you go into that battle, you're going to die, Ahab. And so what does Ahab do? He sends him back to prison. And Jehoshaphat goes to battle and almost loses his life, but the Lord shows him mercy. But all that to say... It wasn't that the prophet's job was there just to say what's going to happen in the end of days. It was what's going to happen in these days, right now, today. And this is how prophecy differs from teaching. Ezra was a teacher in the Bible. He knew the scriptures, he knew what they said, and he explained them to the people. But in that same time, you had men like Haggai and Zechariah, who they were giving God's prophetic word for that moment. They were communicating what God was saying for those days. And I think that's the best way to understand prophecy here. Although sometimes the Bible will use that term more broadly, I think most of the time that's what it means. Forthtelling. What is God saying for that moment? And at the same time, we should not minimize the role of foretelling the future in prophetic word. There's a reason why we use that word that way. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Here's an amazing verse. You ready for this one? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. How about that? How many things does the Lord do without letting his people know? Nothing. That's amazing. So, yes, telling God's word for the moment, but also communicating what's going to happen in the future. God does not leave his people blind. I think you can see how useful and important this gift would be. It's a reminder that our God is not deaf and dumb. God is not an idol that can't speak. God is not deaf that he can't hear his people. He's that very present help in time of need, right? And as Paul travels through all these cities, this time he's in Tyre, the prophets there are warning him that Jerusalem has trial and imprisonment waiting for you. But Paul goes anyway. And we're going to understand why as we continue. Verse 8. Verse 8 and 9 here. 
On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So they spent their day in Ptolemais, later is known as Acre or Acho, and now they go to Caesarea, 40 miles south. There are two places in the Bible named Caesarea because obviously it's named for Caesar, so there were a lot of cities named after Caesar. Just like today, we have a lot of cities named Washington or Columbus because there are culture's heroes, and we named them for that. So this is what's called Caesarea Maritima. Jesus was ministering in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is a different place. It's right on the coast. It was built by Herod the Great, and if you know your history, Herod the Great was considered a builder. He made these incredible structures. He renovated the temple, and Caesarea Maritima was considered his crowning achievement. It was a beautiful city, four harbors that they built, and when they arrive, they come to the house of Philip the Evangelist. I hope you remember this guy. We talked a lot about him several months ago. In Acts chapter 8, we have several stories from him. He was one of the seven men that were chosen to oversee the distribution to the widows back in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen. Remember Stephen? And then there was Philip. And when the persecution came, he was the one that took the gospel to Samaria for the first time. And there was that great revival. He was the one that God called away to go preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the Lord, remember, carried him away and he preached all the way up the coast until he got to Caesarea. And that's where he still is. Very cool because Philip had to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution started by Paul. And now Paul is invited into Philip's house. That's Christian forgiveness. Isn't that cool? And Philip had four unmarried daughters. That's how the ESV translates it. Literally, the word there is parthenos. It means virgin. He had four virgin daughters. And what is probable here is they weren't just virgins at the time. They had committed themselves to perpetual virginity in order to serve the Lord. Very similar to what we would call nuns, although there's a lot of tradition that got wrapped up around that. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about people in the church committing themselves, abstaining from marriage, and deciding, I'm just going to serve the Lord forever. And that's who these four women seem to be. And they were prophetesses. In case you had any questions about this, yes, the Lord uses women as his prophets too. This was the case in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You have Deborah, for example, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. You have Huldah, Maybe you haven't heard of Huldah before, but she was the prophetess in 2 Kings 22 who sparked Josiah's revival. When Josiah found the scriptures in the ruins of the temple, they brought it to the prophetesses and said, what do we do? And Huldah said, you need to repent or the Lord is going to come and bring judgment upon this place. So she was a very significant figure. Back in Luke chapter 2, do you remember Anna of the tribe of Asher, the old woman in the temple that when Jesus was brought to the temple to be dedicated, that she recognized that this was the Messiah. So there is a lot of biblical example of female prophets. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 5, Paul gives us instruction about how a woman ought to prophesy in the church. Now, as I read this passage, he's addressing an issue that will probably make you go, wait a minute, what is he saying? But just hear what's going on and, and don't worry about that just yet. Paul says there, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, I don't want to get into the cultural issues. Basically, what Paul is saying is if a woman is going to speak or prophesy in the church, that does not mean she gets to cast off her husband's authority because God is speaking through me. And the way that that was expressed culturally was by covering the head. Not going to dive too far into that. The point I want to draw out is the church recognized that there were women who prophesied and who prophesied in the church. And this is another reason why we believe that prophecy is different from teaching. Because as you remember, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. But we see in 1 Corinthians 11 and here in Acts chapter 21 that women were permitted to prophesy. So what that tells us is that teachers, not as people, but in, in the office, have the greater authority because we have the once for all word of God that is supposed to ground us so that when somebody is speaking a prophetic word, we're not getting ripped off the foundations. It's an important distinction there. 
what I want to draw out now, as we look through this, not only that prophecy existed in the New Testament, but that as Paul is visiting all these places, it was in every church. Everywhere he goes, they had prophets or prophetesses who were speaking what was going to happen. Which is only what should be expected when you've read Acts chapter 2. Do you remember what Peter said? He said, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The beginning of the book of Acts, Peter says, this just kicked off. Because remember, they had been filled with the Spirit, the tongues of fire. They were all speaking in tongues, and everyone's like, what's going on? He's saying, the days that Joel prophesied have finally come. And he said, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, all of God's people, without distinction for sex, meaning not just men, but the women too, no distinction for age, your old men and your young men, and no distinction of class either, even the male and female servants. The Lord is saying, I'm not going to make a distinction anymore. They're all going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're all going to be empowered for supernatural ministry. And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that not every person has every gift. There are some folks that want to tell you that if you don't exercise this or that gift of the Spirit, you're not saved. That is not biblical. But everybody has some power from the Spirit, and there is special importance given to prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 and 39. So the beginning of this chapter and the end of this chapter. Listen to what Paul says. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then verse 39, So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Isn't it interesting that the one gift that Paul especially points out and says, desire this one, that's the one that a lot of folks want to say, ah, we don't want anything to do with that in our church today. There are many who absolutely reject the idea of prophecy in these days, and they try to either redefine it so that you don't have to address it, or to just forbid it entirely. And I think this stems from, number one, a reaction to the abuse of the spiritual gifts, and also an improper understanding of what we're talking about here. So let's first address the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church. I am second to none and my rejection of anti-biblical excess in God's church. There is so much that has been attributed to the Holy Spirit that is not from him, that is not fair. Even in the New Testament, read through the book of 1 Corinthians, there were those who took God's good gifts and just went wild with them. And Paul had to write a letter, among other reasons, to correct that. He says, look, it's great that you've got all these gifts. I commend you for it, but y'all got to chill. <laughs> You really got to chill out here. There are people today that, ranging from the, the Holy Spirit made me roll around on the floor and cluck like a chicken, and I had to yell and scream, and I had to punch her in the face because the Holy Spirit made me do it. I'm serious. You, you all have heard these stories. And if you've ever seen that and go, that doesn't sound like God. You're right. It sure doesn't. But hear me now. We should never fall into the trap of letting other people dictate what we are going to accept and believe in the church. Even bad examples. There's a lot of us that will see that and say, okay, I'm moving way over here because I don't want anything to do with that. Well, that's not good. Don't let them drive your behavior. We, we can't do that. We can't be reactionary. We are bound to the word of God, not the opinions of people. Amen? Well, if, if I say I believe in that, they're going to think I'm weird. Okay, well, that's their problem, not yours. Your job is to do what the Word says. The Bible tells us that prophecy is real and beneficial, and that's all that matters. Our job is to look to what the Word says and then do that. And I should add, too, that we as a culture are uncomfortable with supernatural things. So we should be aware of that blind spot and look out for it affecting the way we read our Bibles. The other parts of the world, they don't, they don't have that. They understand that miracles happen. They believe in demons. They believe in angels. They believe in all that stuff. So they read their Bibles and they go, okay, well, I guess we should expect that. So we've got to make sure we're not letting a secular culture stick its finger into how we study our Bibles, right? 
But the second thing is more serious. There are those who say, I believe the Bible, and the Bible teaches there is no more prophecy. I do not think that is the case, but it is a very common accusation. And most people just kind of say that without defending it. They'll just say, well, there's no more prophets today. Have you ever met a prophet? Well, of course not. Well, yeah, see, so there you go. But I think if you look at verses like 1 Corinthians 14, 1, where he says, desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 20, which says, do not despise prophecies. That places the burden of proof entirely upon the person who does not believe in those things anymore. I've got very easy scriptures to sit on and say, I still believe in this. Somebody else has to be the one to prove it. But the most common argument you'll hear is, well, prophecy was used to produce scripture. You heard this one? The prophets were there to have scripture be written. And now that the canon is finished, we don't need it anymore. And if anybody else is speaking the prophetic word of God, that means we've got to add to the Bible. Okay, well, that's a very serious accusation. But let me say, I do not know of a single person who believes in biblical prophecy who thinks we should be adding to scripture. So it's a straw man. There's nobody that actually thinks that. The canon is closed. The very last words of scripture are, if you add to this book, I'm going to add to you all the curses of this book. So we're not adding to the book, okay? But you cannot use your loyalty to the Bible as a cloak to ignore what the Bible actually says. The writing of scripture was a prophetic gift. Peter says that in 2 Peter 1.21, that men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy is of private interpretation. It was from the Lord. But that is one aspect of a wide range of prophecy in Scripture. Almost every biblical prophet did not write Scripture. Most of the apostles did not write Scripture. Luke himself was not an apostle, but he wrote Scripture. We never see Jude referred to as an apostle, but he wrote Scripture. We don't even know who wrote Hebrews, so there's something to be said for that. Elijah and Elisha, if there's anybody that exemplifies prophecy, doesn't Elijah and Elisha? They didn't write any scripture. Philip's four daughters never wrote any scripture. Almost everyone in the Old Testament, prophets like Gad and Nathan and Huldah, they didn't write anything down. And Peter expressed what Joel prophesied here. He says, the gift is going to be poured out on all flesh. If you believe that prophecy existed for the writing of scripture then you have to then believe that when Peter said, I'm going to pour out the spirit of prophecy on all flesh, that everybody was supposed to be writing scripture. Well, that's certainly not the case. And I don't know anybody that believes that either. The whole point is you've got to let the word of God define its own terms. It's an inference. Well, prophecy is for writing scripture. The Bible never says that. It never defines it that way. It's a broad application of a narrow principle. Prophecy was that word for the moment. It wasn't new canon. Elisha had schools of prophets. He had seminaries of people that he taught and raised up to prophesy. They didn't write anything down. This is why in the scripture, teachers, as again, are held in higher regard than prophets. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, earnestly desire to prophesy. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, let not many of you become teachers. And why Paul's final instructions were to what? Preach the word. Acts 2, 38 and 39. I think this is what, what sums it all up here. I don't want to do prophecy because uh, prophecy freaks me out. Well, we're not worried about that. What does the Bible say? Well, I don't think the Bible says that prophecy is going to continue until the Jesus comes back. Actually, it does. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So as long, according to Peter, as long as the call to salvation is going out, so also is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which absolutely biblically includes the gift of prophecy. So it actually does say that it will continue until Jesus comes back. We're not going to need prophecy once Jesus shows up. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But in the meantime, we need that word of God for the moment. And as we see here in Acts, it's to be part of normal church life. That Paul would get together with these people and there would be someone that had a word from the Lord. 
There are too many warnings in the Bible against excluding prophetic word. So we've got to be open to it. We've got to give place to it. And we must not despise it when we hear of it in other places. Despising prophecy. What is despising prophecy? Someone said, you know, I think this is what God is saying. And you go, you've got to be kidding me. You think you could hear from God? Well, hold up. What makes you so special? You start casting judgment on who God can and can't use. This was happening in the New Testament, and it should be continuing today. Verse 10 and 11. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Speaking of prophets, while Paul and his team are spending, it says, many days in Caesarea, they get a visit from Agabus. We've met Agabus before. He was the prophet who came from Judea and warned Antioch that a famine was coming to the land. We saw this back in chapter 11, verse 28. So he's a legitimate guy. That's probably why Luke drew this out because it's happening in every city. This scene is playing out, but he's like, even Agabus was there. Another prophet, by the way, who did not write any scripture. Now we see in verse 11, can you imagine if we were standing around together and somebody walked up to you, took your belt off, tied up their own hands and feet with it and says, thus says the Holy Spirit. If you go to that city, you're going to travel to, they're going to arrest you and tie you up like this. How might you react to that? Okay, can I have my belt back, please? That is inappropriate, Agabus. How dare you touch Paul's belt like that? But apparently it wasn't so weird because that was not what they worried about. <laughs> Obviously, it's a sign, right? This is a visual aid. And it's really funny because when we speak words from the Lord, we're always so like nervous and speak haltingly and like, I, look, I, it might be from God, I don't know, but here's what I think the Lord is saying. There's room for that. Agabus wasn't worried about any of that. I know I've heard from God. Give me your belt. Now this custom of using signs or visual aids to give a prophecy is very common in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. It carried over into the New as well. I'm not going to read this whole passage. I'm just going to summarize it for you, but Jeremiah 28 one of the things God told Jeremiah to do is he told him to take a yoke, like you'd put a yoke on an ox, and carry it around on his neck. What was the point? He's saying, we need to submit to the yoke of Babylon. If we submit to them, then God will spare us. If we don't, then we're going to be destroyed. Well, there's another prophet named Hananiah, who Jeremiah has been carrying this thing for months. He shows up, takes it off his shoulders, and breaks it on the ground and says, Thus says the Lord, God has broken the yoke of Babylon. And then Jeremiah comes back and says, Thus says the Lord, I have replaced your yoke of wood with a yoke of iron. Now it's going to be even worse because you're believing false prophets. Do you see? It's a visual aid. This is what the Lord is telling him to do. Why are you carrying a yoke around on your neck? You want to know why? Because the Lord says we have to submit to the yoke of Babylon. God told Jeremiah to do several of these things. You want to know something crazy? The Lord told Jeremiah, Buy a new loincloth. Wear it for a long time. Now take it and go hide it under a rock by the river. A couple months go by. Go get that loincloth and put it back on. What was the point of that? He says, now go walk around in the city and people say, oh, dude, that thing stinks. He says, yes. And you know what else stinks? Your sin before God. This is what your sin is like before the Lord. That's what God had Jeremiah do. God told Ezekiel. He said, take a sword and chop off your beard, and then chop the beard into three piles, and then blow one this way and one that way and leave one on the floor, because I'm going to scatter the Israelites to the east and the west and all that. The Lord told Ezekiel, cut a hole in the side of your house and escape from your house every morning as a sign that this is how people are going to have to be when I send judgment upon Jerusalem. The Lord told Ezekiel, you want to know what he said? This is Bible people. He said, I want you to cook your food from now on using human dung as fuel for your fire. And Ezekiel said, Lord, please don't make me do that. <laughs> and God said, all right, Ezekiel, you can use cow dung. <laughs> what was the point of that? He's saying, this is, again, how repulsive your sin is to me. Hosea was called to go and marry a prostitute. 
The Lord gave Isaiah a son as a sign of victory, right? The Lord used visual aids in the Bible. It sticks in your brain. This is why he did it. Now, there is no mandate in Scripture to do signs with your prophecy. In fact, in our culture, it might not even be appropriate to take off someone's belt and tie up your hands and feet with it. But it does raise an interesting point, and I want to draw this out here about methods. Because prophecy in the Bible looks many different ways. And a lot of times we want to say, oh, yes, I believe in prophecy, but if it doesn't fit in this little box, then it doesn't count. But as I've just expressed, and I'm going to continue to tell you, the Lord does not seem to care much for our little boxes when it comes to that. The Lord has done some wild things when it comes to prophecy. And if we expect it to look a certain way, we might miss what God's trying to do. We, as, as this congregation, we're not exactly a riotous group of people. We're not loud. We don't have crazy, exuberant worship, and that's fine. But we need to make sure that that attitude doesn't affect how we evaluate things from the Lord. And it doesn't quench the spirit. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, David was hiding from Saul. And he went and hid with Samuel at Ramah. And Saul says, get some soldiers and go and send them to arrest David. And when the soldiers got close to Samuel and they heard the music, they all had the spirit rush upon them and they started prophesying, didn't arrest David and went home. So Saul sent another group of people. And when they get there, they get close and hear the music and they start to prophesy. And then they come home and they didn't arrest David either. That happens a third time. So finally, Saul says, forget it. I'll go myself. You want to hear a story? Then he himself went to Ramah, to the great well that is in Seku. He said, Where are Samuel and David? And they said, Behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. And he went to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. That's weird. <laughs> but that's what the Bible says. And we see this several times, actually, especially in the books of Samuel, that when a person would prophesy, it wasn't that they were stripping nude, but that they would, their outer garments and their robes. And this is what Saul did. You can see how God is humbling him here, right? Please keep your clothes on if you're going to prophesy in this church. <laughs> but what I do want to illustrate here, and I hope you can get the big picture without getting, getting stumbled here. The ceiling of what God can do through the Holy Spirit, is very, very high. So when we start setting the bar at certain levels and saying God can't do this and can't do that, you're not standing on a strong biblical foundation. The Spirit works in many different ways. So I want to look through real quick here, just a, a quick list of how do we know when the Holy Spirit is speaking through us? How do we know when something's not just our idea, but that it's from the Lord? Because it, it can happen in several different ways. So I'm going to give a couple biblical examples here. We're going to start from wild and get down to what might make us a little more comfortable. But it's all in Scripture. I mean, obviously the first one is Saul is having some kind of ecstatic experience here. And even in some of the great revivals of history, even Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan. Puritans are not exactly known for their wild and crazy church services, you know, with the buckles on the hats and everything like that. But he said that they would be having service and people would be so overcome by the Lord and by conviction of sin that they would pass out and be passed out for hours and then they would wake up and they would have had these great visions and revelations of their own heart and sins they've been struggling with would be overcome. And that's, that's Puritans. <laughs> that's what's called an ecstatic experience, something that you can't explain and you are not entirely in control of yourself, although there are a lot of people that want to say, oh, I couldn't help myself and do all kinds of weirdness, so let's leave that aside. That's an obvious one, right? That's obvious. Both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts speak of being in a trance, which is another word that makes us uncomfortable, but there it is in the Bible. Sort of like Ezekiel had when Ezekiel said that an angel came and lifted him up by his hair and carried him back to Jerusalem and showed him what was going on in the temple when he just wasn't aware of what's going on around him. We have dreams and visions. Daniel, of course, was famous for having these, right? One of them is an image in the mind, and the other happens during sleep, but God speaks through both of them. 
Oftentimes in Scripture, music is tied to the gift of prophecy. When Saul heard the music of the prophets, it says in another place, was when he began to prophesy. The kings came to Elisha and asked him to prophesy to them, and Elisha said, bring me some music and begin to play. I mean, later on in the New Testament, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, and then immediately says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a connection there. Some people have heard the audible voice of God. I myself have not. It would be really cool if I did. But some people have said, I've, I heard God speak directly to me. The Bible says that sometimes we have entertained angels unaware, that angels can come and speak to us. There's what we might call the impression on the heart, which seems to be the most common way that I've experienced. When you just feel something, like you've got to do something, you've got to say something, and you can't shake it, and it's exactly what the Lord wants to do for that moment. Other times, you're just reading the scripture, and the Bible just opens itself to you in an astonishing way for the moment. And it's not ripping it out of context, but a verse that you've read a thousand times just jumps out at you and is staring you in the face, and it's exactly what you need to hear for that time. You've all experienced that, I'm sure. I myself have even been what you might call an unwitting prophet, where I don't notice anything. I'm just saying what I'm thinking and saying what I normally would say. But for that person... It was prophetic to them because it was exactly what they needed to hear in that moment. And the Lord was almost unconsciously guiding what I was saying. All of those things that I just listed are biblical. And we should not despise them out of some wrong-headed idea that we've got to be sophisticated in church. The Lord speaks to his people and the Bible, not our ideas, but the Bible gives us a long list of examples of how God could speak. But I, of course want to add the proper caution, like Paul does, against being weird and calling it being prophetic. Because there is a lot of that in the church today, the church at large today. But I like to put it this way. The Bible gives us a lot of strange things, but the Lord cautions us against weird things. There's things like, I don't understand how this happened. I've never had a dream like that before. I don't know what was happening. We were sitting in the prayer meeting, and I just had this image in my mind, and I, I couldn't understand it. That's Strange and outside the realm of our normal experience. But there's a lot of folks that just want to be weird and say, God made me do it. You know what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 32? The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. You know what Paul is saying? He says, don't act out in church and say, I couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit made me do it. Because Paul says right there in the Bible, yes, you can control yourself. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. What's the last one? Self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I was so full of the Spirit, I couldn't control myself. doesn't make any sense. Because the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is self-control. And let me say this very clearly. Anybody who ever dares to fake prophetic inspiration or to fake a spiritual experience as far as I'm concerned, ought to be sharply rebuked and not permitted to speak in the meetings like that ever again. It's too serious. It's too real for us to let that happen because it does two things. Number one, it brings shame upon the church. And secondly, it makes other people, normal human Christians like myself, look at that and go, yeah, I'm not touching that. I don't want anything to do with that because there's way too many kooks it cheapens the real thing. It scares people away from God's will. Paul even says that in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, if you guys are all just going nuts, people are going to walk in and think you're out of your mind. Let it be in order and decently so that somebody can benefit from what's happening. Not just everybody going nuts at one time and saying, well, wasn't that a great meeting? The Lord speaks in many different ways. You might even say that as many people that there are filled with the Spirit, there are that many ways that God can speak to a person. But it's all going to be in submission to what God has said in Scripture. And it's all going to be glorifying to the Lord, not bringing shame upon his name. A lot of non-biblical excess. Let me give you a very mild example of this, okay? And hopefully I'm not bothering anybody. But if I am, maybe you need to hear it. You ever know somebody that's got a prayer voice? You know what I mean. Everybody else is praying and they begin to pray. But then when they really begin to pray, like... You know, they, they start to speak longer, and they start to get louder, and they start to rock back and forth. And, you know, people do the thing where they breathe real heavy in between every sentence, right? And that, that's their prayer voice. And you talk to them five seconds later, 
and they're, they're right back to normal. And it's like, you're faking it. You're putting this on to seem and appear spiritual, or you're trying to work something up, which is not how the Holy Spirit works. It's not like, okay, everybody, let's get pumped up. Let's run a few laps. Let's sing some loud songs. Let's clap our hands and jump around. Now we're really excited. Maybe we can hear from God. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. Nothing wrong with being excited, but if you're going to use being excited as a replacement for actually hearing from Jesus, don't do that. Don't do the prayer voice. Don't do the the prophetic voice that people will do. They don't speak King James English any time in their life, but the second they've got something to say in church, thou shalt surely forsooth. It's like, that's how the Lord speaks to you? I think you're just repeating things that you've heard. But leaving aside all that non-biblical excess, we need to be open to the voice of God moving and ready to communicate what he says. Like Agabus, God, you want me to what? I'm going to take his belt and tie him up with it? Tie himself up with it. He didn't tie Paul up. That would have been weirder. But let's read verse 12 here. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This is what Paul has heard in every city. A prophecy of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And the people beg him not to go. Now, of course, we know Paul's going to go. Now, there's some folks that want to say, Paul's being disobedient. He shouldn't have gone. The Lord was telling him not to go. But that is not, as you look carefully, what this passage says. We already saw in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul said, I am constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit was sending him to Jerusalem. And after, we're going to see, after he's arrested in Jerusalem, he's going to have a vision of Jesus Christ appearing to him and saying, you've testified here, you're going to testify in Rome. The Lord was with him. We've got to be careful about saying that people did the wrong thing in the Bible when it never says they did the wrong thing. So here's the question. Is the Spirit giving contradictory instruction? Because if the Spirit telling Paul, go to Jerusalem, and here's all these Christians speaking by the Lord and saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Well, it's very unlikely that the Spirit is going to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth. So what's going on here? I think this is very similar to Matthew chapter 16 when Peter tried to rebuke Jesus for talking about going to the cross. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. They're going to nail me to the cross. And Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, don't talk like that. Far be it from you, Lord. He was trying to let his own agenda get in the way of God's will. What happened here? Agabus prophesied what? That Paul would be imprisoned. And then the people drew the conclusion for themselves, therefore don't go. Do you see the problem? God had not said what Paul should do. They drew that inference for themselves. And in so doing, they actually ended up resisting what the Holy Spirit was trying to do. It is so easy for us to mix our own ideas and our own opinions with what the Lord says. And that we can deliver a message that is sometimes even the opposite of what God wanted to say. I think a lot of us have been hurt by someone who claimed to be speaking for God, but ended up giving us a false prophecy and making us all anxious and fearful. The simple truth is that not everyone who claims to speak for God has a right to speak for God. And that we as Christians need to be cautious in how we speak and in how we prophesy. God may have given you something to communicate to somebody, but don't take what God has said and then throw in a little mixture of your own ideas and opinions and deliver it and say, this is what God says. Two errors we fall into. Number one, we feel so strongly about something, we assume it's God's will. Or number two, we take God's revelation, we dilute it with our own ideas. I've seen this take place where someone claims to be speaking for God, and it's just their own ideas. This takes place mostly when somebody has a hobby horse that only ever prophesies about one thing. You know, they've got one doctrine, and that's their thing, one hobby horse. And if they ever get a chance to speak in church, they're going to talk about that and say, this is what God is saying. A lot of times it's a political thing. I don't know why. But my, my poor father back in Virginia, he's pastoring what is a, now a large church. He has had two groups of people come up to him. One of them said, I have a word from the Lord. You need to require everybody in the church to wear a mask. Then that same service, someone comes up, I have a word from the Lord. You must not allow people to wear masks in this church. Now, the Spirit is not lying. So what you have is you have people taking their own opinions and putting a thus says the Lord in front of it. 
Somebody who sits and stews in the same thing day after day and can't wait to share it. And then we come to church and we give people a chance to speak. Oh, I know what I'm going to say. Some people just sit there waiting for their chance to speak to throw their latest theory out there. And it can really ruin a good meeting because everybody can smell it when that happens. You know, we're worshiping, we're praying. Someone has shared an exhortation. Someone reads a scripture and then someone comes out there and like, that was from you. That was all you. That wasn't Jesus. The church is no place for your ideas, guys, especially if you're going to call it a prophecy. It's too serious to do that. If you've got something that you think needs to be said, then get a blog because this is not the place for it. And if you've not heard from the Lord, do not speak as if you have. And if you've not heard from the Lord, then maybe it's best just to be silent. That's the first thing. Secondly, sometimes God speaks to us and we don't understand what it means, so we tinker with it until it makes sense, and then we deliver that. That's not good, because you can undercut the whole idea. God told Agabus, Paul's going to be arrested. The people added the, therefore, don't go. That wasn't from God. That was from them. I have had times where the Lord has spoken through me. Sometimes God has given me very specific things to speak to people. And I'm like, God, that doesn't make any sense. They're going to think I'm crazy if I say that to them. Then times that I've actually spoken it out, they're like, that is exactly the situation that I'm going through. And they can point for point identify what I was speaking about. And if I had messed with it, they would have just gone like, I don't know what you're talking about. That all sounds good. A lot of times we take specific things from God and we round the edges until they apply to anybody. I've seen this before where someone is, is told, God is like, I want to heal somebody from this specific ailment and this specific thing. And we, we're not doctors, so we don't get how this thing works. And we're like, but if I say that, no one's going to know what that means. So I'll just say, I think God wants to do something good for somebody tonight. Okay, that might be true, but you, you completely ripped out the rug of what God wanted you to say. God knows what he's talking about. Deliver it as it was given. Don't assume that you always know what it means. Sometimes it's not for you to understand. It's for the person you're speaking to to understand. There is nothing more faith building than when God gives an incredibly specific revelation to somebody and then we overcome our embarrassment and we get to watch the Lord work. Isn't that cool? If you've never seen that, it's, it's pretty amazing. When someone just comes up to you and they say exactly the words that you need to hear or exactly the rebuke, or they somehow are aware of something in your life that they don't have any business knowing about. And they still don't know about it, but by using those words, you know exactly what God means. So don't be timid. Don't be over-eager and overstep your bounds, but don't be timid. Let God speak. Don't add your own ideas to what God says. If you've got something that seems to be from the Lord, you just say it like that. Say, I think God is saying to me this, and I don't know what it means. And then just leave it. Because there might be somebody who does. Don't say, okay, I can figure this out. I can add an introduction and a few illustrations, and now we've got a, now we've got a good prophecy. Well, don't do that. I'd rather hear what God has to say rather than you. And sometimes you might speak something that doesn't apply yet. You ever be in that situation? Somebody says something, and like you, 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 maybe you've spoken it, and you feel like an idiot for months. Why did I say that? I, was, I, I thought it was God. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm never speaking again. And then like three months later, something happens. And it was exactly what God was talking about. And you're like, okay. So God does know what he's talking about. Who knew? But don't add to it. Verse 13 and 14 now. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. He says, don't break my heart. That word there is sunthrupto. It, it means to pound with stones. You know, what, are you, what are you pounding away at my heart for? Why are you trying to pound me down and beat me down into doing what you want? He's not going to listen to them. We, we talked about last week, Paul's willingness to endure suffering. He didn't count his life dear to himself. Philippians chapter 1, he said, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. He's like, guys, death is not the worst possible thing. It could be exactly what God's calling me to do. Very similar to the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you see this here? This is Paul's not my will but yours be done moment. 
So, so far today, we have defined prophecy. We know that it's for today in the church. We know that it can manifest itself in various ways, that we're not to mingle our own ideas with it. And you might have been hearing this and thinking to yourself, this all seems like more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> you have a point. This is one accusation that will be thrown at churches that believe in these things, that there have been so many false prophecies, there's so much weird stuff, isn't it better just to completely ignore it and just stick with what is absolutely certain? This comes a, from a failure of many churches to heed the warnings that we are given in the Bible about testing what is prophesied. Paul heard the word of the Lord from these people and was able to sort out the wheat from the chaff. He was able to sort out what was from God and what was the people's opinion. Because there was both of those things going on. And this is why the New Testament tells us to test all things. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. I could put it this way. Beloved, do not believe everybody who says they've got a word from the Lord for you. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, Apostle John warning us to look out for false prophets. Test everything. He says, when someone says something to you and claims to be from God, don't accept it uncritically. Think about it. Weigh it against Scripture and see if it is from the Lord. And I don't think most of us are in error of being false prophets. But we still need to have good discernment because a lot of times we can unwittingly let our own ideas come in to, we feel so strongly about something, we think, well, God must feel strongly about it too, right? And these people, they, they need to know this might be true, but that doesn't make it prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Isn't that questioning God? No, it's not. It's making sure we've actually heard from God. There are those of us who are optimists and always want to give good news in the church. And there are some of us that love nothing more than raining on a parade. And whenever we prophesy, it's going to come out one of those two ways, which is why we've got to weigh what is said in the moment. There are some people that just like to talk in church. I'm one of those people. Look at me. I'm up here. And whenever someone's given a chance to speak something, they've got something to say. You cannot assume that every single time that they've heard from the Lord for that. It's a heavy thing to hear from God. And God gave us prophecy, but he also gave us instructions on how to do it. Not just that you should, but how it should function. Can I run through seven very quick, very fast? I'm just going to read them ways of how you can identify whether or not something is from the Lord or whether it's just a well-meaning person. Get your pens ready. They're going to catch fire here. Number one, it's got to line up with sound doctrine. I've got new scriptural teaching. Yeah, we can toss that out. Secondly, it's got to line up with godly righteousness. People are not going to come in and say, hey, the Bible says that we're allowed to steal now. No, that's, that's not a word from the Lord, okay? Third, it's got to line up with God's character. Someone's got a word from the Lord and it's mean or it's fearful or it's not hopeful or it's not joyful or it's not loving. It's probably not from the Lord. Fourth, it's got to be in line with what's already known. If the Lord has already been speaking in a season or if the Lord has already given us instruction in Scripture, he's not going to contradict that. If we, the church, for example, together are heading forward in a direction and we've prayed and we've fasted and we've heard from Jesus and then right before the end someone comes in and says, the Lord says we can't donate those school supplies and if we do, then the school is going to burn down. Okay, well that is totally out of line of what we already know God is doing, right? Number five, the vessel, the person speaking should be considered. If they're a rude person or a domineering person or a pessimistic person or they have a history of flying off the handle, you've got to consider that when they're speaking to you. If they're just an angry person and they've been telling you you've got to do something and you don't do it until finally they come at you angry and says, God says you've got to do this. Number six, it's got to be subject to the wisdom of the leadership of the church. Sometimes God just speaks to his pastors and teachers in a special way we have to be in submission to those that God has placed over us. If someone says something and everybody goes, oh, the pastor or the home fellowship leader or whoever just goes, I, I don't think we should receive that from the Lord. I, I can't explain why, but I just, I think, I feel from the Lord. We have to be in submission to that. And number seven, it has to come true. Deuteronomy 18 says that if you gave a prophecy and it didn't come true, they could stone you. <laughs> now, we're under grace and we're not going to do that. But we still need to let the truth of what someone has said determine its value. If they're always prophesying that there's going to be 
a hurricane and a tornado that's going to rip up the foundations, and then they come out of the fourth time. It's like, okay, that, that's enough of that. Paul tested what they said, and we should do the same thing. So after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So they're sent off. They finally get to Jerusalem, and they stay with Manasin of Cyprus. It's the only time we ever hear of him, but it's from the same place Barnabas was, so maybe Paul knew him from that relationship. Well, next week, we're going to see that all these prophecies are going to come true. Paul's life and ministry are going to take a serious turn. But what have we learned today? That prophecy is speaking the word of God for the moment. Number two, it's to be expected and encouraged in the church. Number three, there are numerous ways this gift can be exercised. Number four, we don't mingle our own ideas with God's message. And number five, the church is to test all things when it comes to prophecy. We shouldn't be at one extreme that forbids prophecy, that forbids any kind of supernatural ministry, nor should we be at the other extreme that lets the more demonstrative things drive the bus. This is why on Sunday mornings, our most prominent service, we give our time over to teaching, because that's where God places the priority. At our Sunday night prayer service and frequently at our Wednesday nights, we'll open it up for more things, but teaching goes first because Jesus said that teaching goes first. Amen? But that same teaching says in 1 Thessalonians 5, as I read before, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Maybe you've committed the error of quenching the spirit. You despise prophecy and you want nothing to do with them. You've got to repent of that. We live in the same era as the book of Acts. We should experience what they experienced but perhaps you've also committed the error of being uncritical in your acceptance of what you believe to be prophetic revelation for your life. And you don't test all things. Anytime anybody says anything, you immediately believe it. And it's got you going back and forth in your spiritual life and wearing you out. A lot of times when the Lord first begins to speak to us in a special way, we start to trust our own gut feelings rather than what the word of the Lord has said or the godly people around us. And we start to say, well, I know what it's like when God speaks to me. But the Bible keeps on calling us to come back and ground ourselves in what we know to be true first. Okay, you might say, all right, I'm on board. What do I do? Number one, start building up your prayer muscles. Because all of this should be saturated and soaked in prayer. If you're going to say, I'm going to prophesy and you haven't prayed in 30 days, maybe keep it to yourself. And secondly, soak yourself in the scripture. Know what God has already said so that you can know how to evaluate what he might be saying today. Because this is objective. We know what it says. And if you start to do those things, you're not only going to be open to God's gifts, you're not only going to be weighing what is said, but you're going to start to hear his voice just by, by means of doing that. The most common mistake that Christians make is to close up the difficult teachings in a box and put them on a display case called our doctrinal statement and never do anything with it. How many of us have decided we're going to start working out again, so the first thing we do is go to the store and buy all kinds of new equipment and shiny new stuff and cool new clothes, and then it just sits there, and it looks really great, but we don't ever do anything with it. I hope that we can be led of the Lord to not do that. And you might say, well, this seems like it could be messy. It is. I used to do this with high school students. Believe me, it was messy. But we cannot trade what God intended for something that we can always control. Because the truth is that the job that the Lord has given to us is too big, and the Lord saw fit to send his Holy Spirit to help us along the way. And you know something else? Jesus did not do a lick of ministry until he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And if he needed it, I know for sure I need it, and that we as a church need it as well.